The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Looking this evening at Exodus 17, 1 through 7, and at the passage in which water comes from the rock. Now, as I was preaching this morning and thinking about uh, the mystery, really, the deep mystery of how God's will and my will relate, and I shared with you this morning that I really don't understand that and never really will. Um, I don't know myself. I don't know myself well uh, or perfectly. God knows me, but I don't know myself, and none of you know yourselves either. Um, perfectly. We don't understand why we do what we do. That's a Bible verse, by the way, Romans 7. I don't know why I do what I do. Um, And uh, that's so true. And we don't know ourselves. But I feel that so much of the journey of sanctification is a tour of my own heart. And it isn't pretty. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, day after day, taking a tour of who I really, really am and how much I needed Christ And um, it can be overwhelmingly discouraging if you don't have a strong grip on grace and understand how much grace has taken hold of you. Um, Because there's so much uh, sin and so much of our hearts uh, naturally rebelling against God. And I think that that's actually one of the great purposes of the book of Exodus as well. Because it just seems to go from chapter to chapter, one rebellion after another. And it gets a little wearying, doesn't it? It's like, when are they going to learn? that God is faithful, that he is doing a great work, and they are not going to be carried to the promised land on flowery beds of ease. It isn't going to happen. God is going to test them. He's going to bring them to the limit. He's going to come in late with what they need and stretch it out and see how they react when they go many days without food or many days without water. He's not going to make it easy, and it wasn't his intention to make it easy. And so we come to another challenge in Exodus 17, the second time that they lack water. Listen to these verses. The whole Israelite community, this is Exodus 17, verse 1, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, this is a very significant event in Israel's history and much referred to in the New Testament. But as I said, I think at the immediate time, the purpose was to show the Israelites their own hearts. Now, 
as we've been traveling along in the book of Exodus, we've seen time and, and time again the faithlessness of the Jewish people. For example, you remember when Moses and Aaron first came and presented themselves to the Jewish nation. And things immediately got worse because Pharaoh commanded that the bricks be made without straw. And so in Exodus 5, the Israelite foreman, it says, realized that they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Well, that was the first time that the Israelite people uh, murmured and argued against the Lord and against Moses and Aaron. And so it happened again at the Red Sea in Exodus 14, verse 10 and following. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out into the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Well, that's the second time. But they murmured and complained. And in both cases, God did not do immediately what God's people wanted him to do. He didn't immediately release the Israelites, but rather they had to make bricks without straw. And he didn't immediately protect and defend them from the Egyptian army. Uh, that would come once the way was made through the Red Sea. God is not going to make it easy for the Jews, and he's not going to make it easy for you either in the journey of sanctification. The third time happened in Exodus 15, verse 22 and following, when they came to the waters of bitterness at Marah. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter, and that is why the place was called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? And so again, we see the faithlessness of the people. And again, God's willingness to bring that faithlessness out. To create a circumstance in which it bubbles to the surface. And so I think that providentially God leads you into circumstances in which your heart's nature is going to be revealed. If it's in there, he's going to bring it up and out. And when it happens, it's not going to be pleasant. And so it was for the Jews as they grumble time and time again. And then again in the desert of sin in chapter 16, verse 2 and 3 with the manna and the quail. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly. To death, And we talked about that. How bizarre it was for them to have, a, have such a memory of their time in Egypt. It was almost like a carnival cruise. They didn't have those back then, but that's what it was. They were just sitting around pots of meat, just kind of shooting the breeze and talking together. And kind of lazily stretching and reaching out with a fork and pulling some more meat out of the pot. Oh, for the days of Egypt, when we could go back and eat just like we did then. And how they murmured and complained again against Moses and Aaron and against the Lord. Now here, for the fifth time, we see the same thing in Exodus 17 at Rephidim. It says in verse 1, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. Now this is the key thing. 
we've seen again and again in the book of Numbers, we cited the locations and how, how the pillar uh, of cloud and of fire set out and when it moved, the people moved and when it stayed put, the people stayed put. If it stayed put for one day and then moved, they would move. If it was there for months, they would, they would stay until the Lord moved. And so it was here also. They were going from place to place as the Lord led them. And so I always think of Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, that him, whenever I think of this concept, is that he is leading them from place to place as they pilgrim through that barren land. And that's very important to remember because what that means is that God searched out the place where they would camp and led them to it and there was no water there. That's so vital for them to understand and it is vital for you also in your life to understand the providence of God. You are where you are tonight because God has led you here, wherever it is in your life. God is not the God that's going to create circumstances of ease and comfort around you except to refresh you and get you ready for the next trial. You think about the promises that God has given us and one of the promises that he gives in John 16 is in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That's Jesus. He spoke that way to us. That is a promise from God. In this world, you will have trouble. And if you're not having trouble right now, it's just that God is refreshing you and getting you ready for the next time that you'll have trouble. That's just the way it is in this life. And so much difficulty, additional burden comes when we don't expect that. When it comes on us and we say, how can it be? Here we are in this place and there's no water here again. Oh, what a poor captain is leading us. Well, they weren't thinking about God at that moment. They were coming at Moses and Aaron and blaming them. And so it is that we frequently do this, blaming the human instrument, forgetting that it was, as it says in verse 1, that they were traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. So whenever you go into a trial and you find a place where there's no water, whatever that means, say, the Lord brought me here. I'm here at the Lord's will. The Lord commanded that I go through this. This is God's will for me in Christ Jesus. And so they came there and they were murmuring. And they're murmuring against Moses and Aaron, but really they were testing God. As you see down at the very end here in verse 7, the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now that is very offensive to God. In effect, God needs to keep, keep putting out. He needs to keep making it easy for us. He needs to keep giving us what we need, or we'll wonder whether he's with us or not. Oh, God's better than that, and he's treated us better, and he deserves better than that from us. You know, it should not be the case that as soon as there's a lack of water, we begin to wonder, is God among us or not? God has not forsaken his people, and he's not completed bringing his people into the promised land, and so uh, they murmured against God. A.W. Pink said this about the journey through the desert. Had Israel been transported from Egypt to Canaan with ease and comfort... They would not have made such sad exhibitions of what the human heart is. And as a consequence, they would not have proved such admirable examples or types for us. But their 40 years of wandering in the desert furnish us with a volume of warning, admonition, and instruction fruitful beyond conception. From it we learn, amongst many other things, the unvarying tendency of the human heart to distrust God. I'll read that again. From it we learn the unvarying tendency of the human heart to distrust God. In short, anything for the human heart but God. Our heart wants anything but God. It would rather lean upon a cobweb of human resources than upon the arm of an omnipotent, all-wise, and infinitely gracious God. 
Give us something we can see. Meet our immediate need, and then we'll know that you're here among us. Other than that, we cannot trust you. And so we have a display again and again of the sin of Israel and really of our sin. Now, in this case also, we have an example of the faith of Moses. Now, put yourself in Moses' place. If you ever feel sorry for yourself, think what it would be like to have that job, leading Israel out of Egypt. They want to stone him. All he's done is basically lay down his life for them day after day after day. And he says, what am I going to do with this people? They're ready to stone me. And so whenever you feel like complaining, just think about Moses' life, and then you can rejoice. But uh, Moses takes the brunt of it again and again. They're blaming Moses as though he were able somehow to find water for two million people. This is well beyond Moses' capability. But Moses is faithful here to do what he must do, and that is to bring this matter to God in prayer. And so he does that in verse 4. Then Moses, it says, cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. Now here he's speaking very honestly, and it's a good thing. There is a pattern here for us of pouring out a complaint before God in a respectful way and to say, I am troubled by the sin of this people. They are ready to stone me. What am I going to do with them? But he comes to God as he does in all of these trials. He comes to God in prayer and he turns faithfully to, to God. And then God faithfully leads Moses. Look in verse 5 and 6. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And so this is very clear instruction from God. And I think also a pattern for us in the Christian life. You know, the Bible says anything that does not come from faith is sin. And so therefore, I think we ought to be presenting to God all of the decisions we make, all the stewardship decisions. Lord, what would you have me spend this on? How should I spend my time? How should I spend my hours? What should I do about this? What about that, Lord? Bringing it to God again and again in prayer. And wouldn't you love to be led with this kind of specificity in your life? Do this and then do that and I will do this and then etc. Do you think it's possible for God to communicate that clearly to his people? I think absolutely. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And so we have to learn to bring things to God in prayer and ask him to guide us. And so Moses gets very, very clear guidance. But as usual, God is operating at a higher level, a much higher level than anyone could have imagined. Do you think Moses fully understood the significance of striking the rock and having water flow out of it? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, we who sit here today, filled with the Spirit, having the full counsel of God in the Word, know and understand more about that rock and the water than Moses did. Because God has fulfilled it in history in the person of Christ. This is a great picture of Jesus Christ. Turn with me, if you would, over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And here you'll see this whole thing really consummated. Now you can listen along if you'd like, but I think you're going to lose some of the impact if you don't look along. So uh, just put something, a pencil or some kind of bookmarker in, in Exodus and go over to 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 10 really begins at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, doesn't it? In 1 Corinthians 9, uh, the section that I'd like to start is at verse 24. And it relates very well to the message that I preached this morning. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, 
but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. There Paul gives us insight into how he runs the Christian race. How does he work out his salvation with fear and trembling? Well, like this, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, like a race to be run, like, like a boxer training for a match, but not beating the air aimlessly, uh, like somebody who, who is getting ready for a great contest, strength of will and determination, beating his body so that he will not be disqualified for the prize. That's how he runs. And immediately after that, we go into chapter 10. For, that's a key word, isn't it? That's why I started in chapter 9. For, I want you to understand, I run my race like this because I have some examples of people who did poorly way back when. The Israelites in the desert. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, and they drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Do you see that? The rock of our study tonight, Exodus 17, the Apostle Paul says, is Christ. Now, he's not in any way saying there wasn't a physical rock. He's not in any way pulling the rug out from under us, historically saying that it didn't really happen historically. Not at all. He's just saying that God was doing more than one thing at that point. There was a physical rock, and there was real water, and the two million plus people really were refreshed by drinking that water. They survived by drinking the physical water that came from the rock. No question about it. But Paul's saying there's a spiritual significance to it. The rock was Christ, and they drank from that water that flowed. Nevertheless... God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts in evil things as they did. Now verse 6 is a very important verse in the New Testament for teaching us how to read the Old Testament. All of the good and bad things that happened to people in the Old Testament happened as examples for us in terms of how we are to run our Christian race. They serve as warnings to us. Now, what is the warning from Israel's history? Well, don't be like them. Don't constantly disbelieve God. Don't have an evil heart of unbelief that turns away from the living God. But trust him in your trials. And also deeper, don't assume that just because you are kind of partaking in the general blessings of the community, that you're okay that you're regenerate, that your sins are forgiven. Just because you're hanging around and passing through the sea and kind of under the cloud and drinking the water like everyone else did and just being part of the community, that you're fine with God. You may do all of those things and still have an evil heart of unbelief that turns away from the living God. And so just because you're going to church, Corinthians, just because you got baptized, just because you're eating the Lord's Supper, just because you're hearing the preached word, the new covenant blessings, doesn't mean you're saved. Because God was not pleased with most of the people that experienced those things. Their bodies were scattered in the desert. And so that is a severe warning. And so go back to chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, I watch myself. I guard myself. I work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I stay close to God. I beat my body and I make it my slave so that I'm not disqualified. I take my Christian life seriously 
As Paul said to Timothy, I watch my life and my doctrine closely. I keep an eye on myself. I don't trust myself. And I don't assume that I'm, I'm running straight and true. But I ask my brothers to pray for me and watch over me. And I keep bringing my life alongside that perfectly straight measure, that rule, that canon of Scripture, which lines up laser perfect with the will of God. And so that's what he's saying. This is a warning from Israel's history. And in this way, I disagree with A.W. Pink. I love Pink's commentary. But he, sa- he brings up the point, and he, later he'll make the point, that the water flowing from the rock signifies the Holy Spirit. And so it does. Just as the rock is Christ, the water flowing from the rock is the gift of the Holy Spirit. What he says, though, is that all of them drank. They all drank from the rock, and that proves that all Christians have the Holy Spirit. Well, that's absolutely true. In Romans 8, it says it directly. But to me, that's not a positive thing, the fact that they all drank from the rock. It actually is very negative in that they drank from the rock and perished anyway. And therefore, I think the whole thing falls apart at that point. The point I'm making here is just because you're part of the community and kind of experiencing what everybody experiences and going to church on Sunday morning and hearing the preaching and being around Christian people does not necessarily mean that you're saved. To me, that's the warning that we get from this example. But the rock is Christ, and these examples are given to warn us. All right, go back, if you would, um, to Exodus 17. This picture that we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is that Christ is the rock. And it's interesting that God uses a rock to signify himself. And this is actually a frequent image, isn't it? God as a rock. For example, Moses talks about this in Deuteronomy 32.4. God is the rock and his works are perfect. All his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. David in Psalm 18 says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. This is a repeated image again and again in the Psalms and in Deuteronomy and a number of other places. God is called a rock. So also Christ is called the rock. It says in uh, Romans 9, verse 33, As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Christ is the rock of stumbling, but he's also the firm foundation for your life. And so he says at the end of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. So that's everyone that hears the word of God and puts it into practice. A rock, then, is an image of stability. It's an image of permanence, of refuge and protection, a picture of God's strength, a picture of his faithfulness to his promises, a picture of his immutability. He never changes. The second image we get in here is that of the rod. Moses was told to take the rod with which he struck the Nile River, and he's told to go strike the rock with that rod. Now, what does that rod signify? The first time we notice anything about the rod is that God told him to cast it down, and it became a snake, a serpent. Therefore, the rod is a picture of the curse, the serpent, an image of the curse from the Garden of Eden. So also the rod becomes a symbol of the law of Moses. With that rod, Moses struck the Nile River, the first curse that he he, uh, poured out on Egypt. And with that rod, he worked all of those plagues. Really, is an image of God's cursing on the sinful people. The rod, then, is the symbol of the curse of the law. 
All right, well then what is the significance of the striking of the rock? If Christ is the rock and the rod is the law, then the striking of the rock is the cursing of Christ. It's the striking of the smiting of Christ with the curse of the law. Again, in verse 5 in Exodus, it says, The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and the water will come out of it for the people to drink. And so it is, before the blessing of the water of life, the rock must be struck with the rod. There must be a smiting of Christ, and Christ must die under the curse of the law. Isaiah 53.4 says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. These are strong words. God, we considered Christ to have been stricken and smitten, struck by God himself. Isaiah 53.8, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. Well, we see a perfect fulfillment in Christ, don't we? Micah 5.1 says, They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. I mean, that's about as literalistic of prophecy as you're ever going to get. And so in Matthew 27, it says that they stripped Christ. They put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. Then they spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. I mean, think of a staff like a, like a rod, like a broom handle or a very strong stick. And Christ has these jagged thorns and they're smashing him on the head again and again. Repeated smashings, the torture of Christ and the disrespect and the pain but the ultimate striking, of course, was Jesus' crucifixion, his death on the cross. And when they had crucified him, his blood had been poured out. Jesus died, and he died under the curse of the law. I think it's amazing to me that in John's gospel, right after he's dead, one of the soldiers, instead of breaking Jesus' legs, noticed that he was dead and took a, a spear and shoved it up into his side. And it says in John 19, verse uh, 34, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. It's kind of an interesting image, isn't it? The flowing of blood and the flowing also of water. In Galatians 3.13, it says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, as it is written, cursed is everyone who, hung, who hangs on a tree. And so Jesus Christ was struck by the law. The image here is, I will stand in front of you. That's what God says. I will stand in front of you, go with the elders, and strike the rock. It's almost like the Sanhedrin and God and Christ, the guilty party, not because of any sin of his own, but because he is the sin bearer, he is the substitute, and our guilt is transferred onto him. The Sanhedrin de declares him guilty and rejected by the people of God, and God pours out his wrath on the rock, on the substitute, and he becomes stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, and out of him flows a river of living water. And so this is the fourth image, the flowing of water. Now in the Old Testament, it certainly was physical. They needed physically water in order to survive. But this image must be, I think, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Turn, if you would, in John's Gospel to John chapter 7.
John chapter 7, verse 37 and following. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Isn't that a wonderful verse? I mean, I can't get enough of that verse. I think about it a lot. Obviously, Jesus is not speaking of physical water here. He's speaking of a soul thirst. If you want something, come to me and I'll give it to you. If you're hungry for something, if you're thirsty, if you want satisfaction, come to me. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I think it's a great disservice for evangelical churches to say that this verse is only for unbelievers. For them to say, it's for you who have never come to Christ. Come to Christ today and you will receive salvation. I'm saying to anybody, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Even if you've been a Christian for 40, 50 years, if you're thirsty tonight, come to Christ and drink. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And then he says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Now, I've always puzzled over this as the scripture has said. But I don't think it's, it's much of a stretch to think that Jesus is thinking of Exodus 17 here. Streams of living water flowing from the rock. And I am the rock. Come to me and drink. Come to me and be satisfied. Streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who had believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not been, yet been glorified. And so again and again the image of the Spirit is of one who is poured out. The pouring out of the Spirit in the day of Pentecost. He's like a river of living water that satisfies. Just as Jesus had said earlier to the woman at the well. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who is speaking to you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, she said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. We said in our, our Bible study, you have no bucket and no rope. So what can you do? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from him himself and also his, his children and his flocks and herds? And Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give him will become within him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that God providentially brings us to dry places so that we feel again our thirst and our lack and our need and we come again, John 7:37, to Christ and drink. And our soul is restored. In this world, you will have trouble. The trouble is meant to drive you to Christ again so that you ask him to meet your need. If you're thirsty tonight, come to Christ. If you're thirsty tonight, come to Jesus Christ and say, satisfy me, I need you. I need your help. And he will refresh you. Now, what kind of warning do we get out of this passage? We have a promise here, don't we? Come to Christ, be refreshed. What kind of warning? Well, I already gave you one warning from 1 Corinthians 9 and 10. One warning is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Run with seriousness, run with endurance, the race marked out before you. Beat your body and make it your slave. Don't be like the Israelites who, had, who drank from that rock and who were under the cloud and went through, went through the Red Sea and then died in the desert and never made it into the promised land. Don't be like that. But walk with God consistently in everyday life. But also look, if you would, with me to Hebrews chapter 3. This passage that we're studying tonight has an ancient history of warning. 
The first one to write down how this passage warned him was King David. King David, reading over this account, came to Exodus 17 and said, Ah, Masa and Meribah, where they quarreled with the Lord. Let's not be like that. Psalm 95, he said, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 95. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So David, thinking back 500 years back before his time when he wrote Psalm 95, said, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to fail to enter the promised land because of an evil heart of unbelief. If I hear God's voice today, I'm going to trust him. If I hear him speak to me today, I'm going to obey. I'm going to do what he says. I'm not going to turn away in unbelief. And so he wrote down for us Psalm 95. Then, about a thousand years later, the author to Hebrews comes across Psalm 95 and reads it. And he writes Hebrews 3, 7 and following. Hebrews 3, 7 so, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation and I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Hebrews 3.12, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. That's a warning to us, isn't it? Don't be like them. Don't hear God's voice and then turn away with a hard heart of unbelief. Watch out lest you be hardened by sin's trickiness. Sin is the ultimate con artist. It promises what it will never deliver. Satisfaction, refreshment, good times. If you want satisfaction and refreshment, come to Christ. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And you'll drink without regret. You'll drink and be refreshed. But today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Keep walking with God. 
That's the second warning I get out of this text. The third warning I get from Moses himself. In this case, Moses was faithful. In this case, Moses did what he was told to do. He was told to strike the rock and water flowed, and so it did. But later on, he disobeyed God. And the account is in Numbers chapter 20. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin and stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. This is around the time of Miriam's death. Now there was no water for the community. Huh, again? <laughs> Why does God keep leading them to places where there's no water? Could it be he wants more stuff to bubble to the surface? I think so. There was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses. Boy, they haven't learned anything, have they? No water, go yell at Moses. It's almost knee-jerk. It's like Pavlov's dog. No water, go yell at Moses. Every time. There's no water, so they gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert, that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, no grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Now, by the way, grain, figs, grapevines, and pomegranates is a good description of the promised land, isn't it? They could have entered then if they'd had a, a heart of belief and faith and trust, but instead they're still wandering in the desert, eating manna three times a day and drinking water wherever God finds it. So they're complaining against Moses. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You can bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. That's interesting to me. Verse 9, just as he commanded. So he took the staff just as God told him to do. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Amen. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Now this is amazing, isn't it? After all that Moses had gone through, 40 years of wandering with his people, after all of his faithfulness, in a peak of temper, one of his character flaws, he had a temper, he got angry, and in a peak of temper he disobeyed God, and God never forgave him. He forgave him ultimately in Christ. And so there was no, uh, no block in terms of his entrance into heaven. But God would not permit him to enter the promised land. He would not allow him. And even though Moses came again in Deuteronomy 3 and begged him, said, God, you're about to bring the people into the promised land. Wouldn't it be okay if somehow I might be able to go in there too? That's my paraphrase. It's not exactly like that, but that's what it says. At that time, I pleaded with the Lord, O sovereign Lord, you have begun to show to your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or earth who can do the deeds and mighty works you do? Let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan. Oh, you feel the pain there, don't you? Let me go and see it after all these years. That fine hill country in Lebanon. But because of you, the Lord was angry with me. 
and would not listen to me. That is enough, the Lord said. Do not speak to me anymore about this matter, but go up on Pisgah and I'll let you look at it. And there on Pisgah you will die because you disobeyed me. And so for me, this is striking. You know, Moses was a leader and God told him to do something and he disobeyed. And so the standard for Moses was very stern. But uh, Moses did not get to see the physical promised land or enter it, but he got to enter the true promised land. That physical promised land was just a type. It was a shadow. The real promised land Moses did enter because of Jesus Christ. I learned one more thing from this, and that is this. Moses disobeyed God and the water poured out anyway. That's very interesting to me. People talk to me, well, so-and-so, God has blessed the ministry of such-and-such, and that proves this. It doesn't prove a thing. It does not prove a thing that if God uses this individual and water flows from the life of this individual that God approves of everything concerning that individual, their life, their methodologies, their doctrines, their sermons. No. It's a faulty conclusion. God wanted to bless his people with the water. And Moses disobeyed God and did not do what God told him to do and broke the type I mean, he really broke it because Jesus only had to die once and after that, death no longer had any mastery over him. He never needed to be struck again. And the water flowed. And from then on, you just speak to the rock. You just pray. You ask and rivers flow again and again. He ruined it by striking the rock again. And yet, the water poured out. And that is the grace of God. So don't be quick and hasty and say, just because God seems to be blessing a ministry that all's right with that ministry. There may be many people converted. There may be much money uh, flowing for the service of the Lord. There may be all kinds of things happening. Still something's wrong because God just decided to bless in spite of rather than because of uh, the one who's serving him. So let's keep that in mind. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.